Good. Well, so glad you're here. If this is your first time with us, hope you feel right at home. Um, we want to spend some time in the Word together. Then we're going to move into some time around the table, the altar table, celebrate communion together. And my hope, as always, is that this is a rhythm for you, that we don't em- embrace this. I mean, different people have different philosophies on church, and there's some, definitely there's value in several views. But um, the one that we've taken is this. This is a rhythm. This is a ritual. This is part of our regular life. This is not an event, a one-time thing, a performance, a play. This is a part of who, who we are and who we hope to become. So the invitation, the ramifications of this view of church is that, you know, all that stuff, the junk happening in your life, just bring it. Just bring it in. Like, it's okay. Bring it in. Accept the realities. Let's see if the word of God will say something to real life, okay? Let's see if we can integrate our faith with the rest of our life. This should not be an insular, separate kind of experience. This should make, not necessarily make sense, but this should, the gospel should confront and apply itself to um, the real challenges and hopes and realities that we're facing. So I just, I just invite it all. Let's just bring it in and hold it loosely and say, Lord, I'm, I'm for, for the next few minutes here, as this guy, as this guy tries to teach the Bible, uh, I will, I'll be available um, to consider uh, what it is that you're saying, all right? Have you ever had a Bible that has the words of Jesus printed in red? Have you seen those? So I used to see those quite a bit when, um, when I was becoming a Christian, like in high school, and it was very helpful to me because I was trying to orient myself to who are all these voices, and so it was really helpful to be able to see the words of Christ printed in red, um, to know what it is that he said, to become familiar with what he taught. This is important. Christians should know what Jesus taught. I took a class in grad school called The Life and Teachings of Jesus by a guy named Dr. Walter Elwell. And I'll never forget the first class. It was an evening class. It would go three hours or so. And he would, he would he, this is what he did to open the class. He walked up to the front row, and uh, I was like the sixth person down, Gene. Thanks for taking the front row. Appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, Dan's sick at home. We'll pray for Dan today. So what he did was he went to the first person. He said, what did Jesus say? <laughs> and the person was like on the spot, um, trying to think of stuff. And this would be his pattern. Next person. So what else did Jesus say? They thought of everything they possibly, he would not relent until they quit. And then the next person, what else did Jesus say? I was like the sixth person. I'm going, oh shoot, that's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. You said what I was, all right? So it's important that we know as followers of Jesus, at least of those who have been baptized and claim to be a follower of Christ, we shouldn't be able to say, this is, what, this is what my Lord taught. This is what Jesus taught. Phenomenal man, phenomenal class. Um, what did Jesus say? The whole Bible we believe is the word of God, but it is important to know the red words in a sense, the, the words that Jesus said. It's also important for us to know the red actions, if we could put it like that, the actions of Christ, to not know just what Jesus said, but to know what Jesus did. And I don't know of a translation that highlights the actions of Jesus, but once we had a professor from William Jessup who taught Hebrew, and she spoke here, and she said, she argued that from a Jewish perspective, the emphasis would be on Jesus's actions, that a Jewish translation of the New Testament would probably, before they highlighted the words of Christ in red, they would probably highlight his actions in red to lift up off the page, this is what Jesus did, right? So for the next several weeks, um, we're going to be looking at the actions of Jesus that follow the words of Jesus, We're going to look at the red actions that come after a big section of red words, and we're going to start in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus, for the context, Jesus has just finished what's what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is the largest 
block of teachings of Jesus that we have. Matthew records this long chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew chapter 8, this long block of uninterrupted teaching from Christ. And he ends that section with these words. I'll just read it. Matthew writes, he's the narrator, he writes, when Jesus had, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as one of their teachers of the law. All right, so what is it that Matthew points out that lifts Christ's teachings, um, that contrasts him as a teacher from the rest of the Jewish teachers? What is it that set him apart? It's his authority, right? This is what's remarkable to Matthew. This is what's remarkable to the people, the authority that Christ brings to this task of teaching. Now, in that culture, a teacher would demonstrate their proficiency in their topic by quoting from the experts in the field. And that's how you would demonstrate you knew what you were talking about. So a good Jewish teacher may sound something like this. Well, uh, Father Moses wrote this, and the prophet Isaiah told us this, and the rabbi Hillel, he explained it like this, and you would just be quoting, quoting, quoting all these other people to show that you had mastered the subject of spiritual pursuit of God or whatever it is that you're talking about. Jesus will occasionally quote other people. He will. But Jesus uses a phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that might sound a bit alarming, probably did in its original context, Definitely sounded authoritative, and his phrase was this, truly I say to you. That's what Jesus would do, right? So rather than leveraging the perceived authority of others, Jesus grounds his authority in himself. In other words, or for example, he said, you've heard it said, um, do not break your oath, but I say to you, do not swear an oath at all. Another place Jesus says, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. So not only is the content of Jesus' teaching profound, confrontational, but the way he taught was different. He taught as one who had authority. He himself had authority. And then Matthew, who's the one narrating the story, he follows this long section of Jesus' teachings teaching with authority, with this second section of Jesus demonstrating that authority through his actions. So first you've got Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And then Matthew's chapter 8 and 9, he is bringing the kingdom of God. You got the red words followed by the red actions. And his actions are designed to validate and demonstrate that he is authorized to speak the words of God. Follow me? So it's like Jesus teaches this remarkable ethic of love and sacrifice. He says all these incredible things. If I took time with you and said, what did Jesus say? You would, you would remember some of these things, like, blessed are those who mourn. That's a famous quote, very confrontational quote from Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. Things like, love your enemy. Okay. Things like, don't worry about tomorrow. These are some of Jesus' top 10, right? Um, it's as, and it's as if he then anticipates the reaction of those to whom he's speaking as being something like, who are you to say that? 
What authority do you have to say, you've heard it said like this, but I'm going to totally up the ante and say it like this. And so he comes down from the mountain and he demonstrates his authority. And Matthew, who is the narrator, he records nine stories, one after another, after another, after another, after another, that demonstrate Jesus's authority over all manner of forces, natural and supernatural. And we're going to work our way through some of those stories in the next few weeks, the sixth Sunday season called Lent. Have you heard of Lent? If you've been part of our church for a while, you've, you've heard of Lent at least. We usually uh, embrace it as, a, as something, invite people into this uh, intentional practice of this season. Let me give a little quick little definition of what this is about. The Christian faith has a calendar. Did you know that? The Christian faith has a calendar. It's not divided into months. It's divided into seasons. And one of the seasons is called Lent. Like Advent leads up to Christmas... Lent is the season that leads up to Easter, which is the biggest holy day in the Christian faith because that's the day we remember and celebrate that Jesus has risen from the dead. That is our primary message. That is our biggest day. It makes a whole lot of sense for us if that's really what we are going to be anchoring this faith in, the resurrection of Christ, that we take some time to prepare our hearts to embrace it and to celebrate it. So at Easter, we're going to, well, during Lent, I should say, the Christian is invited into a season of fasting. It's a bit of a challenge because it's a sobering time. It's a time of simplifying. It's a time of focusing on our need and, yes, even our mortality. That's what we were reminded about on Ash Wednesday a few days ago. From dust you have come, and to dust you will return. Turn from your sin, right? At Easter, in contrast, we're going to celebrate the triumph of the resurrection. Easter is a time of feasting. We're going to make lots of food. We're going to invite our families together. But during Lent, we fast. We fast to prepare for the feast. We embrace solitude. We embrace silence. We remind ourselves that we are dust. In, in, and this is interesting. In historic Christian liturgies, the word hallelujah is omitted during Lent. You, you don't, historically, you don't say praise the Lord during Lent, because this, that's a celebration, and this is not a time for feasting. This is a time for fasting. The thinking behind this, friends, it might sound strange to us, but it's essentially this. You must grieve your brokenness if you're ever going to really celebrate your healing. Okay? We are such an instant fix culture. We miss what makes things meaningful. You got to grieve your sin if you're really going to celebrate your salvation. We don't want to stumble into Easter morning. It will not have its transformative effect on us if we do that. No, we must long for Easter morning. This is the meaning behind, as Melissa was saying, some of the practices common in Lent, like fasting. We want to feel the hunger, right? We want to feel the cold, so that on Easter morning, we, we explode into this place full of anticipation, savoring the meal we're about to have, right? Tasting it even before we can, feeling the warmth of the fire that we've been needing for so, and then we want to appreciate it, not just like, oh yeah, take it for granted, it's Easter, right? We want to know our need so that we can fully celebrate the fulfillment of the prophecies in the ministry of Jesus. To feel the victory, you got to face the suffering, right? You got to face the suffering. The best Olympic videos I'm seeing are like 
that Slovenia, uh, Petra somebody from Slovenia, broken ribs, punctured lung, we like win, finishes the race. Those are the moving stories to me, right? Facing the suffering, those are the victories that are moving to me. Those are the victories that seem to matter to me. To be filled with God's love and power, we must be emptied first of self-centeredness, self-reliance. And so we've titled our Lent series, Empty to be Filled. And empty is the verb. Empty is the invitation for the next five or six weeks. Empty. So we'll spend the next few weeks reflecting on various kinds of needs, various kinds of grief, various kinds of emptiness, and then together we're going to gather around this table each week as we always do, and we're going to um, recognize our need for and then be filled and hopefully be filled by and with Christ as we anticipate his resurrection. All right? So you ready for Lent? All right, here we go. Look at Matthew chapter 8 with me. Just four verses this morning. Begins like this. When Jesus came down, this is in your notes uh, today, not on the screen, in your, on your notes. Uh, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, Large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. All right, there's a whole lot of stuff there. Let's take it in three parts. First, the need. Let's talk about the need. Matthew begins the story like this. Look at that first verse one more time. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Leprosy in the Bible typically refers to any kind of contagious skin disease. It may sound rather minimal in our modern culture, but it was massively significant in Jesus' day because in addition to being potentially contagious, skin diseases rendered a Jew unclean. They were therefore unwelcome in social settings and unqualified to engage in the spiritual life of their community, unqualified for worship because nothing unclean can enter the presence of God. Right? So we're not talking about a stubborn rash or an unfortunate blemish or a bad case of acne or something like that. We're talking about a disease that wrecks your whole life. It renders you unclean. You are not welcome here anymore. You must leave. You cannot be here. You're unqualified for public worship. So being a leper is a really, really big deal. Your whole life is going to shut down, and no one is going to be able to help you. And so Jesus has just delivered his I have a dream speech up on the mountain, and now here he comes down. These are the most famous words he's ever going to speak, and then he's going to come down, and he's like going to step off the stage, as it were, and there's crowds all around, and then this, this leper comes up to him, approaches him, this person in desperate need approaches him. Nobody can do anything to help this guy. So here comes this guy. Nobody can do anything to help. He comes up to Jesus apparently to see if Jesus can do anything to help him, right? Except the surprising thing is that the leper doesn't seem to be wondering if Jesus can. Did you, did you catch that? He doesn't ask, can you help me? His question is, will you help me? His question is not about Jesus' ability 
in other words. His question is about Jesus' willingness. So the leper's real need is not someone who can help. He believes he's already found someone who can help. The leper is not wondering, can you help? He already believes Jesus can help. The leper's need is somebody who will help. The question is more like, nobody's willing to help me. Jesus, are you willing to help me? Nobody will even come near me. Jesus, are you willing to touch me? I'm an outcast. I'm not accepted by anyone, anywhere, anymore. Am I accepted by you? That's the question. No doctor will see me now. Will you heal me? So the leper, not up on the mountaintop with the crowds, wouldn't have been allowed, not permitted. And we see in the very context of the story that the leper's experiencing a lack of willingness on the part of society to accept him. And so he waits. He must wait. He has no alternative but to wait for Jesus to come down into the mess of the street and the grime and the normalcy of just the regular day life. And then he comes up to him and he says, are you willing? And uh, that really is the question. That's his need. Because nobody is willing to hang out with this guy. Nobody's going to help this guy who's perceived to be unclean, unwelcome, right? Contagious. The leper knows this. He knows this more than most people know this. So before we get to Jesus' response to the question of the leper, um, let's consider, like the leper is a specific man with a specific disease, a specific situation, and the response is important. Before we get to that, let's consider what you and I need. Let's consider what... Let's, Come back out of the story for a second and think about the key to this story, I believe, is this, that the leper doesn't ask, can you help me? The leper asks, because he already assumes Jesus can. He already assumes Jesus can. The bigger question at stake in this story is a question about Jesus's authority. That's the underlying implied question throughout this whole text. He's been up on the mountain teaching all these big things. Does he have the authority to say that? Where's this guy get off, right? Those in power are going to question Jesus' authority, his whole ministry. It will always be something they're questioning. Those confronted by the words of Jesus will fall into this pattern. They will sidestep his words, and they'll go after his character. That's what they'll do, right? They'll try to attack his authority. The leper, however, stands out in contrast to all the rest, and it's for this reason. He already believes Jesus does have the authority. He's settled on that. Somehow, it's just fascinating to me, it's always the outcasts who seem to get it. It's always the outcasts. They seem to understand Jesus better than the educated, better than the powerful. So here comes Jesus, trucking down the mountain, big, big crowd follows him, up walks this leper, everybody parts, nobody wants to get too close to that dude, but they don't leave because they're curious, what's Jesus going to do here? Implied question, does this guy have any authority to say the kinds of intense things he's been saying? Can Jesus help this guy who's beyond help? So there's really two questions in this story. There's the implied question of the crowd, which is, are you able, Jesus? And then there's the specific question of the leper, which is, are you willing? Two different questions happening at the same time in this story powerful Christian preacher from the fourth century that I appreciate. His name is John Chrysostom, and he, he writes this about this story. He says, the leper discerned who Jesus was. He did not state conditionally, if you request it of God, 
or if you pray for me, Jesus. Rather, he said simply, if you will, you can make me clean. He didn't pray, Lord, cleanse me. Rather, he leaves everything to the Lord and he makes his own recovery dependent entirely upon Jesus. Thus, he testifies that all authority belongs to Jesus. In other words, the big question on most people's minds is, does Jesus have the authority to speak for God? Does Jesus have the ability to back up what he's saying? What's impressive about the man with leprosy is that he has already settled that big question, are you able? But in asking his question, are you willing, he's about to demonstrate for everybody else both Jesus' willingness and his ability. Jesus has the power to do whatever it is he wills. If you are willing, is the question, or is the statement of the leper, you can make me clean. Powerful. All right, here's Jesus' response. Matthew writes, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Okay, so let's step back out of the story again for a second. What is the message to us? On the surface, this looks like a healing story, right? But it's actually not a healing story. It, it's actually a story that's demonstrating the authority of Christ. That's what this story is about. It looks like a healing story, but the real issue is way more core, way more central than that. Healing in this story is just a byproduct of the real issue under question, which is, does Jesus have the authority over my life? That's the real question. Healing is just a byproduct. Jesus' response to the leper is very specific. I am willing. And Jesus' message to the leper is very clear. It's this. You already believe I can. Know this, in addition to my ability to heal you, I will heal you. Be clean. Right? Where others are not willing, I am willing. Be clean. In other words, while some wonder, is Jesus able? Jesus makes this profound statement. I am willing. Let's just get to the point. I am willing. Right? Be clean. Have you ever noticed that sometimes people ask Jesus questions and he responds with another question? Right? Have you ever noticed that sometimes people ask Jesus questions and he talks about something totally unrelated? Right? Uh, one of the things that's remarkable about this, one of the things that's going on in those situations is that those questions are off, often. We would say, he's doing that because they're asking the wrong questions. That's what, that's what we would say. And, and one of the things that's going on in this is that the, the leper is asking the right question. He's asking the good, a good question. Here's a bad question. It's not a bad question, but to contrast, there's a story about a man whose son is a mess. He's possessed by something. He comes up to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, will you help us? And Jesus' response is interesting. If you can, Jesus says. And then he says the line from that first song, anything is possible for him who believes. Right? The if you can question, just to be blunt, is the wrong question to ask Jesus. Okay? So uh, in other words... That's it. That's the wrong question. Have you, if you've been asked, if you've been asked um, ever to help somebody, sometimes the people will say, hey, are you, um, are you able and willing to help me on Saturday? Anybody ever said that to you? Are you able and willing to help? 
Sometimes I, I, uh, I go, well, I'm able, but uh, I don't really want to help. Uh, I'm not willing, um, right? Other times, other times I do want to help. And so I'm like, well, I'm, I'm willing, but I don't know how to do that. So I'm not actually, I'm not actually able uh, to help you, right? But if I go up to Miles and I say, Miles, are you willing to help me on Saturday? What is implied? What is implied? Right, I already believe he's able, right? I already believe he has what it takes to help me. I'm gonna bypass the question that for me is not really a question, and I'm just gonna get to my main question, which is, are, are you willing? So that's what's remarkable about the, about the leper's words. It's remarkable. He has faith in Christ where others don't. Jesus' response is also remarkable. Three quick reasons. It's remarkable because it's rare. He actually gives a direct response to a specific question. That's super rare for Jesus. He rarely does that. And I think one of the things that that demonstrates is that the leper's asking the right question. He's asking a good question. Second thing that's remarkable, Jesus' response is remarkable spiritually. His response demonstrates he has spiritual authority over sickness. Right? In case that didn't hit your radar screen. Jesus is saying, oh, by the way, I am able, right? I have authority over this. And third, it's remarkable socially. That might even be more powerful. Jesus' response is powerful because uh, it is more than a specific, personal, situational, unique to this specific circumstance response. Jesus is going on record for all who wonder, oh, I'm good with helping the outcast. I am willing to help the outcast. In case, because nobody else was, and it was a social and spiritual issue. And Jesus is like, breaks through all of that and says, actually, I am. I am willing to help the outcast. All right, finally, let's look at the consequences of this story. Jesus said to him, see to it that you don't tell anyone. Right? The, the previous words, I think, were immediately the leprosy left him or something, right? And then see to it that you don't tell anyone but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Two things. First, Jesus tells the leper not to tell anyone. Kind of confusing to us, uh, but Jesus does this often and it appears to be a timing issue. It appears to be something related to the fact that Jesus doesn't want to be known as a magician, as a miracle worker, um, he wants to be known for his message. He wants to be able to have the freedom to preach the word and then to demonstrate its authority through miracles. But he doesn't want to get the cart before the horse. It'll be a circus if that gets out too early, right? Eventually it gets out and it's kind of crazy. That's why he probably tells the guy, hey, don't tell anybody, but go show the priests. That's the second consequence. This is interesting. Jesus says, show yourself to the priest, offer the gift Moses commanded. He's referring to like, Thousands of years earlier, Old Testament, you can read about it in Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14. This is, the, this is what he's talking about. If you're cleansed of a skin disease, the Bible, Moses' writings, Leviticus says, you need to present yourself to the priest, and the priest will authenticate the validity of your healing. It's the priest's job to say, yep, it's good. It worked. He's healed. It's interesting. It's not the physician's job. The physician, see, has a personal interest in the effectiveness of his or her treatments, so you're not going to let it lay on the, the, the mind of the, or the responsibility of the physician. There needs to be a third party to authenticate the validity of the healing. This makes a lot of sense to me. I, 
<laughs> had knee surgery a couple years ago. I was very frustrated with the result. I came and met with the surgeon afterwards, and he said, well, this, the, surgery, the surgery worked perfectly. I said, well, <laughs> that's why I'm here, actually, Doc. I kind of want to contest that assessment. Um, the point of sending the diseased person to the priest was so that the priest could affirm that the person was, in fact, healed, is no longer unclean, is welcomed back into the community, can participate in worship. Again, what's interesting about this is Jesus already knows the dude's healed. The leper already knows he's healed. <laughs> Jesus doesn't want the word to get out yet that he's a healer necessarily, but Jesus does want this healing to testify to those who are questioning his authority to do so. This is awesome. It's like Jesus says, hey, go show your skin to the priest. See what he has to say about this, right? Yeah, it's like he sends him the leper who's already been healed as a way of forcing the religious rulers to answer their own question about his authority to heal. I mean, it's brilliant. It's awesome. It's a slightly edgy, too. I kind of like it. In other words, to the one who's asking an honest, direct question, are you willing? Jesus plays it straight. I am willing. Be clean. And to those who are sitting in their educated skepticism and will remain skeptical no matter what Jesus does, Jesus basically says, so how do you read it? <laughs> who do you say I am? And just leaves it at that. Doesn't waste any more time at this point, at least. So what? What do we take away from this story? Uh, I think there's two primary takeaways, take-homes, uh, from this story. And the one that you, if I could say this, the one that you should take home with you today, the takeaway that you should embrace as something to wrestle and struggle and think about throughout this week, it depends on which question you're asking. It depends on which question you're asking. The are you able question or the are you willing question. So maybe you're asking the main implied question of the story, which is, does Jesus have authority to be in charge of my life? Does Jesus have the authority to be in charge of my life? If that's the question you're asking, that is Jesus able to handle this? Is Jesus trustworthy? Is Jesus, does he have the authority? Then the takeaway for you this morning is simply this. Empty yourself of the need for proof. Empty yourself of the need for proof. This is your Lenten discipline for the week. Empty yourself of the need for God to prove it to you. Friends, let that go. Let that go. The gospel show that no amount of miracles, signs, wonders ever convince those who are resistant to Jesus as Lord. It never works. They demand signs. Sometimes they get signs, and the signs don't do any good. Friends, you don't need proof. You need faith. That's what you need. You don't need a sign. You need to surrender your life over to the Lord. This is the message of this story. It's not actually about healing. It's a story about the authority of Jesus Christ and those who accept it and those who don't. That's what the story is about. 
And I don't have time to fully get into the story that comes next, but I hope you'll read it, the story after the leper story, because it's awesome. It's about a centurion. Does anybody know what a centurion is in the Bible? You know what it is? What is it, Lincoln? It's it's exactly right. It's a Roman soldier, and he's a centurion. He's in charge of a hundred other soldiers. So the very next story, this centurion comes up to Jesus. He's got a leper. He gets it. He's an outcast. He gets it. Then you got a centurion, the next story. He comes up. The centurion's the bad guy. He's the soldier of Rome, right? And he gets it. So you got the outcast gets it. The bad guy gets it. What do they get? Very simply, they get that Jesus is Lord of all. The centurion comes up to Jesus because his servant at home is super sick. He tells Jesus that. Jesus says, would you like me to go to your house to heal him? And the centurion says, no need. Just say the word. It's incredible. He's like, I'm a man under authority. I got a lot of men, a hundred specifically, under my authority. I say, go there. They go there. In other words, I got this authority thing all figured out. I'm, I'm, I'm completely clear on this. You don't even need to come to my house. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus' response is, I have not found anyone in Israel with faith like this guy, which would have been super confrontational to every Jew under the foot of the Roman boot. Oh my gosh, the centurion gets it, right? The centurion has faith, yes, because he gets the authority piece, right? So if you're struggling with the God, is God able question, with the, does, does Jesus have authority over my life? Then friends, you need to empty yourself of that need for prove it to me so that you can be filled with faith. Those are the two things. Intention right there. And then here's a second takeaway. Maybe you're thinking about the leper's question. That was the implied big question. Here's the specific question of the story. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. If you're willing. And this is a, you know, a relatively common pattern. I've heard this in prayer a lot. People say, Lord, if you're willing... Or if, if it be your will, heal my grandfather. Or if it's your will, give me this job. Or if it's your will, provide somebody for me, uh, you know, a relationship. These are fine prayers. But here's where we get stuck with these prayers. We try to figure out God's will. When we get stuck there, we just get trapped there. It's pretty challenging to know. It's not impossible. It's pretty challenging to know in advance God's will for specific situations in our life. In retrospect, you look back and you go, oh, I got the job. It must have been God's will to provide that job for me. But there's really very little way of knowing ahead of time whether it's his will that you get that job, his will that you meet that person, his will that you get healed of that disease. And often we spend all kinds of energy and worry trying to figure out God's will. Remember, the other Nathan says, (laughs) Jesus is the one that taught us to pray, God, your will be done, as it is in heaven here on earth. So clearly we're taught to pray if you're willing type of prayers. But I think we typically apply these kinds of prayers to specific situations of personal guidance. And I'm not saying that's wrong. What I am saying is that's not the way the leper is praying that prayer. So don't miss this. He's not trying, the leper is not trying to figure out God's will. The leper is demonstrating he will submit to God's will. Do you see that? It's significantly distinct. 
He's surrendering to God's will. The reason the leper is the person in the story that we should try to be like is because he already knows Jesus can, and he's surrendering to Jesus' will, whatever it is. And that's admirable. That's faithful, right? It's okay to pray for healing. We're taught to. It's okay to pray for provision. We're instructed to in the words of Christ. It's okay to pray for deliverance. Other stories teach us to do this. But this story is remarkable because the leper's remarkable trust in Christ, whatever your will be, Jesus. He puts the whole thing at the feet of Christ. And if that's where you are today, if you're wondering, God, what's your plan for this? This situation is so broken. It's so hard. What's your will for this? If you're grieving illness today, as I know some of you are, if you're grieving tragedy in your own family, in the country, all around us, onslaught of tragedy upon tragedy, if you're grieving broken relationships, as I know some of us are, if you're like the leper, you know God can, you just don't really know if God will, then the invitation for you this morning is this, empty yourself of the need to know. Empty yourself of the need to know how this is all going to work out. Empty yourself of that internal demand for control. I got to figure this out. I got to fix this so that you can be filled with peace. With peace. Pray to the God who can. Pour out your heart. Tell him all your desires. Be open about all your fears. And then rest. That's the invitation. Rest. Right? Not, it's not in your hands. It's in God's hands. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. That's what Peter says at the end of his life. One of the most meaningful disciplines that I have is this intentional prayer before I go to bed where I just say, God, help me to set this stuff on this. I literally picture my bedside table, which is actually a bedside shelf, I must need more space. Uh, and I picture this stuff that I'm just so con- on the, sh- just for a, sh- just sh- a short time, Lord, just for tonight so I can sleep in peace. This is important. I care about it. It's meaningful. I got to do something. But for tonight, help me to just set it aside, trust you with it, take my hand off the wheel so I can rest so I can have peace. And the invitation is for me, even in the responsibility of addressing issues of brokenness the next day, the invitation is for me to maintain that relationship all throughout the chaos of the day. Do my best to engage the brokenness with the truth of God, but not take responsibility for it so that I can have peace, so that I can be like, you know, like in the pain and in the chaos, but still full of peace, not drowned in all of the mess. Yeah, the Bible talks about a peace that surpasses understanding, which implies at some point you got to lay down that need to understand so that you can receive the peace. So this is the invitation, friends, to recognize my life is a gift from God. I will allow him to take authority over it. My family is a gift from God. I will allow him to take authority over it. 
My future is a gift from God. I will allow him to take, I'll place this under his authority. Two big ideas today. Rather than demanding proof, pray for faith. And rather than the need to know, pray for peace. Okay. That true deep peace that comes when Jesus is in charge, that testimony of the historic Christian that says, my life belongs to Jesus, my Lord. Jesus, my Lord. He's in charge, right? Got the authority thing focused. Um, let's pray together. So Lord, we, we ask you, I ask you for myself, for all of us, for courage, clarity, recognize the needs of our hearts, and then the real question beneath the questions. And I pray that this season of Lent would be a time when we're honest with ourselves and our needs. And I pray that you would just pull us toward yourself. Uh, not towards anything else, figuring it out, but just finding our solution in you, in you. Have mercy on those who struggle today, Lord, with real challenging issues. Um, I pray that your being our Lord um, would be a source of peace for them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.